Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up earlier today with Keith Coughlin, who's the executive chairman of European Metals. Uh, we talked through the project uh, for this year, moving towards a DFS, most significantly advanced European lithium uh, story, sitting within uh, quite an advanced uh, ecosystem there. Um, lots covered, um, fascinating conversation. Do listen to it. If you want our thoughts and opinions on it, um, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where you can also find detailed company reports and analysis on a variety of other topics you might find it useful. Uh, commentary from experts from around the world uh, commenting on things like lithium, other commodities, companies, uh, definitely fascinating insights there. Uh, training courses to help you with your diligence process. There's uh, summaries of other interviews that we've done in case you don't have enough time to do it yourself. Plus, there's a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other in a nice, safe, friendly environment, free from trolling and abuse. And if that sounds nice to you, and it should, uh, go and join them, cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Keith, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm well, thank you, Matthew. How are you? Not too shabby, not too shabby. Well, thanks for joining us for uh, this uh, lithium week that we've got on at the moment. So I've been, been wanting to hear this story for a while. I think we we, uh, we heard it oh, over a year ago, um, but looking forward to catching up. So uh, where are you at the moment? I'm based here in Perth in Western Australia, so quite a distance from the project. Uh, but, you know, we travel is uh, problematic at the moment. It is, it is. Uh, are you going to get to get there anytime soon? I think so. Things are obviously improving generally and opening up. Um, so, you know, I would hope um, in the next few months I'll be able to get back to site. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. Well, and Perth's not too uh, shabby a place to be hanging out, so uh, I don't feel too sorry for you. There are worse places than Perth to be at the moment. <laughs> well, okay. Why don't you give everyone that one-minute overview of the business and I'll pick it up from there. Certainly. So we're developing the Cinevix project in the Czech Republic. It's a lithium project, a historic mine, historic tin mine. Uh, it's a very large resource and, you know, happily the macro conditions for lithium and EVs and things in Europe are, are very positive at the moment. So we are progressing the project quite nicely. The European ecosystem, which people talk about, we talk about the American ecosystem, European ecosystem, Asian ecosystems, and, um, you know, people got different views as to, you know, how advanced each are in terms of this EV thematic we keep talking about. So um, can you sort of describe to us what's happening in, in Europe? Because we, we see news reports about, you know, zero carbon targets. We're looking at all of the automotive uh, manufacturers um, against setting themselves targets with regards to you know, new lines, new cars coming out. So what's your, what's your take on it? Well, my take is that the EU has made its decision about what direction they want to take. Uh, and, and that is very much to green energy. Um, you know, there was the announcement last year, I think it was about May, of a 550 billion euro fund green energy stimulus package uh, based largely around new energy, around a battery industry, around a, a, an EV future for the EU. And I believe that that decision is made, it's done. So that is the direction that the EU is heading. And in order to get there, they have some very, very big and ambitious targets. And But in order to get there, there needs to be a lot of work done, a lot of money invested uh, in order to get there and get there quickly. 
So if you look at it from a pure supply-demand equation, Europe has always been historically the second largest importer of lithium anyway, and that's before the advent of this electric vehicle era. So that's only going to increase the demand for lithium in Europe, and there is no production. There's no production of battery-grade lithium material in Europe whatsoever. So the EU is in something of a quandary. You know, China currently controls some 83%, I think, is the number that's generally quoted, of downstream lithium chemicals. And it, it would be an interesting business plan for the EU to commit this amount of money to a new industry and then have to rely on China, for example, Asia in general, or really anywhere outside their own control for a significant portion of one of the key ingredients in building this industry. And, you know, it would be bad business, uh, certainly not sensible. And one thing that COVID has shown us over the last 12 months is uh, global supply chains can get disrupted quite easily. So, you know, I, I think that's the macro. That's why Europe is going so hard down this path. Okay. And, um, I mean, for, in your case, you're right, there's very few lithium producers there. I mean, I can count them on one hand. Um, and it, there's, the supply-demand numbers look ludicrous. So Europe's going to have to kind of keep its borders open. They are going to have to continue to import here. But do you think there's going to be like a bifurcated market? Do you think that you guys are going to get a better price because you can be greener in terms of that supply? I think there are two separate issues there. You know, the, you mentioned the greener. You know, I think that there will come the time when there will be qualification of your battery metal supplies, you know, ensuring that they're coming from the right sources. This whole concept of ESG is becoming more and more important globally in all mining industries, but, you know, particularly with regards to battery metals, new energy. Um, and, and you know, that is, that is, I think, going to make a difference. Whether you can get a, new, a better price, I'm not sure if it'll come down to that, because you're right, um, Europe is going to struggle to be completely self-sufficient in lithium, in battery metals in general, whatever happens and whatever the, the aspirations are, you know, they're simply uh, not the projects in Europe at any stage of development to make that happen. So yes, they are still going to be reliant on imports for some considerable time, but there is a distinct commitment within the EU to develop local critical materials as much as they possibly can. We saw the establishment of the European Critical Raw Material um, uh, alliance midway through last year in response to exactly this. And, you know, it's just becoming a, a greater level of awareness that you can't keep relying on other parts of the world for these raw materials. But, the, you know, countries have had the critical mineral lists for years. Okay, that's nothing new. But the, the, so what is this new alliance going to do for you? Because I'm interested in understanding what powers do they have to help companies operating in Europe? You know, we've talked about battery metals, passports. We've talked about various mechanisms for taxing imports. So, you know, have they got the power to do that? Is that there yet? Uh, I, I don't think it's fully there yet. I, I think you're correct in identifying that. But uh, I do think that they... There is a serious commitment to ensuring that these groups do have the power, the raw material alliances, and there are other groups. So, for example, we announced about midway through last year a strategic alliance with one of the EU bodies called the EIT, European Institute of Innovation and Technology, 
And there are a number of these EITs. Uh, there's one, for example, for Inno Energy, which is the group I'm talking about, but there's another one specifically for raw materials and other matters. And the EU has identified that uh, in order to make these macro plans actually work at a, at a grassroots business level, they need entities like this to be go-betweens, if you like, between the policy and the, the significant funding at the higher level as I say, right down to um, on the ground business to ensure that they can hit these targets as much as they possibly can. So they are providing um, these groups with with certain um, uh, a certain level of power, if you like, or a certain level of influence to make these sorts of things happen. And you know they can certainly improve the situation through through doing these sorts of things. I and mean, if you look at this LCA, this lifetime carbon assessment of projects, you know, it's not just for the miners, it's for the EV manufacturers as well. They could be doing everything right, but if they're sourcing their raw materials from uh, somewhere that doesn't tick the boxes for LCA, then they're going to be marked down on their overall score as well. And the penalties for not meeting emissions is going to be significant. Well, look, Keith, you mentioned one of the funds, you know, the EIT, you know, Energy there. There seem to be quite a few funds um, putting a lot of money. We're talking, you know, tens if not hundreds of billions of bucks up for the different countries in the EU to, well, I guess it's the main aim is job security, but also to kind of secure this kind of greener future, which is the kind of main thematic here. How, did that, how does that benefit companies like you? How do you take it? Well, maybe not take advantage, but yeah, but let's stick with benefit. How do you benefit from that? How do you how do you insert yourself into that system where perhaps there are grants and funds available to a company like yours where you're not having to dilute shareholders? Well, it, it is actually a key and it's a key part of it. The relationship we have with EIT, the contract we have with them in part, has them assisting us in hopefully, you know, achieving some of these grants, certainly in applying and applying for some of these grants. And it's it's in both phases. You know, you mentioned employment, but you also mentioned in terms of the green credentials. So yes, there's going to be um <clears throat> excuse me, there are going to be job losses through your through the uh the traditional car industry, you know, going from ICE vehicles to electric vehicles, there will be job losses. There's going to be job losses in going from traditional coal-fired power to green energy. You know, there's a lot of coal mines, particularly in the area that we we will be operating, and there will be significant job losses in um, in those industries. So clearly, the EU wants to, and the member states want to replace those jobs as much as possible. So, for example, there is one fund. It's a fund called the Just Transition Fund, and it was established by the EU to do just that to help. Uh, economies, EU economies that have been previously reliant on coal to transition to green energy. And this is just one example. Now, you know, this is a fund that we believe we will be likely to get some assistance from because we'll be doing just that. We'll be taking historic uh, coal miners and training the lithium miners. You know, the area in which we're operating is a traditional coal mining area. And to give you some idea of the quantum, the EU has committed 40 billion euros to the Just Transition Fund. So, you know, they're not, they're not playing around with small numbers here. That's a very significant amount of money, obviously. So if you ask me how the project could benefit, we could benefit 
from the point of view of, of receiving um, funding, partial funding for the project from the Just Transition Fund. Um, and, and there are other funds, you know, that we are likely to be able to qualify for. But also we've, we've already seen in this broad sector um, assistance from the EU in funding in terms of soft debt. You know, you look at uh, the, the European Investment Bank lent, I think it was 460 million euros to Northvolt, you know, to start to build their, their battery factory. Um, and that, that, that's on very good terms. And a portion of that debt, I think it was about 100 million euros, was subsequently guaranteed by the, by the German government. So we are seeing that sort of uh, offering, export credit finance and these sorts of things as well. So, you know, our project will need to raise something in the vicinity of half a billion US dollars to go into construction. And if we were to, if we were to get a portion of that through a grant, if we were to get another portion of that through soft debt, you know, and the balance, the balance of the non-equity component through commercial debt, it means that your overall non-equity component is, is very attractive and potentially more attractive than in other parts of the world. So that does give you some, some advantage, there's no doubt. And obviously, if you've got a, <clears throat> an attractive a debt package, then, you know, the equity offering is going to benefit from that and also be, be attractive. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think people quite often forget to work out the cost of the money. People look at the CapEx or the OpEx and they look at what those numbers produce, but the, co the cost of capital here and the way that you can interact with some of these funds, I think it's going to be really, really important. But um, look, I, I appreciate just giving us that kind of macro overview of what's happening on, on the ground across across Europe there, but we better talk about your project though, okay? So um, again, tell, tell us a little bit about uh, Sinovac because um, you've, got a, you've got a couple of partners, a couple of quite big partners. Significant partners in the project. Well, well, you know, one main significant partner at project level. But so, so Sinovac is a very, very large lithium resource. It is, it's by far the largest hard rock lithium resource in the EU. That's important, you know, not just for the sake of being big, but it goes to long-term security of supply. Um, it's also it's also going to be a low-cost project, as indicated by the definitive feasibility studies um, that we have done uh, to date. Um, but in terms of our partnership, we bought the the Czech power utility CEZ or Ches into the project. Uh, about 12 months ago now. So they came in at a project level, uh, wrote a check out for nearly 30 million euros um, to, to buy 51% of the project. And that, that money effectively um, funds the project through to our final investment decision in about another 12 or 14 months time. So that's, um, you know, they're a very important partner to come into the project. So Chess has a history of coal mining, and obviously, you know, as we discussed just a moment ago, you know, coal mining is being shut down. They've been moving into green energy for some years. They're involved in a number of other green energy initiatives. They own all of the uh, electric vehicle charging stations throughout Czech. They are a shareholder in the largest onshore wind farm in in the EU, for example. So you know, Chess have been going down this path for a while. And that makes them a, a very important partner for us. They also have aspirations to build battery factories, both in the Czech Republic and um, and in neighbouring countries. So you know they could well be a 
they could well become an off-taker to the project eventually as well. Um, the, the, other, the other partnerships I think you're referring to, as I mentioned, you know, the, the EU um, uh, midway through last year, but then we also signed a, a contract with the engineering firm SMS in September of last year. SMS, a very big, very well-regarded uh, German engineering firm. Um, and uh, they're very well credentialed in this space. So very good to have SMS on board. They'll deliver the definitive feasibility study for us, as I say, in about 12 months' time. And that will come not only, not only with a, um, a lump sum fixed price turnkey EPC contract, but it will also come with product, guarantee, product specification guarantees and process guarantees. So a very important contract there with Chess. And so 2020, through, through those three uh, partnerships, agreements, contracts, we've, um, we've significantly de-risked the project and just makes it far more likely that this project will go into production. Then when we add in that, the groundswell, the tailwind that we're seeing out of the EU that I mentioned earlier, you know, we're feeling pretty confident about the way this project is going. Okay, um, we know SMS um, Group through uh, conversations we've had with Neo Metals, because um, we understand that the size, scale, uh, and abilities there for sure. Very, very good partner. Just back on Ches though, because they're are they entirely state owned or is it predominantly state owned entity? Sorry, no. So Ches are a publicly listed company in the region. I think their market capitalization is about twelve billion euros, but they are seventy percent owned Got by the Czech government. Gotcha. Okay, so the question is. Um, does that help you with permitting, licensing, and all matters admin in country? Well, it, yes. Look, it definitely helps us. I, it doesn't. It doesn't help us in the sense that it rubber stamps us. You know, we don't get a rubber stamp through just because we're partially owned by the government. We we the project is partially owned by the government. The it, it um, you know we still have to go through the process, but you know, Chess has been operating in country for decades and operating very successfully in country for decades, both in the mining space, in construction, with regards to you know, land access permits and all of these sorts of things that we otherwise have very limited experience in. Um, you know, they have a whole department um, within within the organisation that handles these sorts of things. So it will be very beneficial for us, yes. Okay, right. So you've still got to go through the process and do things the right way, but at least people are paying attention. Okay. Um, exactly. Let's let's talk let's talk about what you're hoping to produce. Okay, because again, you can sit anywhere along that lithium uh, supply chain in terms of the types of products that you could you could produce. I suspect, but you, you need the right technical expertise now. So, where do you hope to position yourself in the market in terms of the products first of all, and you know how do you capture market share in Europe? Okay, so we've completed two preliminary feasibility studies into the project. The first one was for the production of battery-grade lithium carbonate, and the second was for the production of battery-grade lithium hydroxide. Now, we have produced both of those materials to battery-grade specifications in our test work leading into those preliminary feasibility studies. The reason we went to hydroxide was that at that time, the demand for hydroxide was ramping up and uh, and that's continued to be the case. You know, I read an article um, only two days ago about the the foreseen demand for hydroxide over, over carbonate and how that gap is simply going to widen. So we wanted to ensure we could demonstrate 
the ability to produce both of those. And, and we have done so. We've done so at lab level in small scale and part of the definitive feasibility study is obviously to upscale that. So it's a fully integrated project. We're not looking to produce a concentrate to ship somewhere else to have it turned into you know, battery materials. Um, so we will be selling directly to cathode makers, battery makers, EV manufacturers themselves uh, in a fully integrated project. There, there are no lithium conversion facilities in Europe whatsoever. So any, any current business plan to make, it, to make a concentrate in Europe needs to be shipped somewhere else in the world for, for processing. Um, that may change, obviously, particularly with the amount of support the EU is giving, giving to uh, becoming you know, lithium self-sufficient as much as possible, but it's not a reality as yet. So, so and only, only material that is actually turned into material that can be sold directly into the battery supply chain is going to assist the supply-demand equation in the EU. Right? So if you, you make a spodumene concentrate in the EU and you have to ship it to China, it's very unlikely it's going to come back to, um, to Europe uh, you know, in any hurry. If you're hoping to produce hydroxide, you've got to test that outside of the lab. You've got to do it at, at economic scale. So you're going to need to insert a pilot plant into uh, the process there. You're going to need to fund that. So what, is, what does that pathway look for you? That, that is all part of the definitive feasibility study. It's all part of the, the uh, budget for the DFS and it's all completely funded through Ches's investment of 12 months ago. So Ches's investment of nearly 30 million euros gets us right through to bankability. Beautiful, okay. You know, final, final investment decision. Right, and then the next step is conversations with, 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 well, presumably you're going to have to sell this into market, whichever versions of whichever amounts of the different products that you could create, you're going to sell these into market. So how are those conversations going? The, the conversations are going well considering the stage that we're at. So um, part of uh, another part of the EIT's brief with us is to introduce us to off-takers. They've put us, or potential off-takers, They've put us in front of four or five, I think now, above and beyond the people that we've made our own direct contact with. Um, and, you know, we, we, I'm confident that we will be able to talk uh, sensibly about offtake, um, you know, in the first half of this year, um, you know, hopefully, you know, at the, at the earlier stage of that. I think a part of that is uh, because of what we're seeing globally with the supply demand equation. You know, if you looked at the normal lifestyle of a mining uh, life cycle of a mining project, and when you'd have significant offtake discussions, it, it would this would probably be quite early in an ordinary sense. But I think the supply demand equation for lithium going forward is quite well appreciated now, and and that means that uh, potential offtakers. Uh, having these conversations earlier than they might have, might have otherwise had. Okay, I, I talked about your sort of technical competence earlier. I mean, so how, how are you proving? I get, I get the lab test process. You're going through DFS, and you've you've got some great partners in there. But who on the team is actually delivering this technically? So, in terms of the metallurgy, the chemistry, etc., uh, we have a fellow on the team called Grant Harmon. Uh, Grant was the the chief 
lithium metallurgist at Talison Mine for six or seven years, I think. Uh, Grant is very well versed in lithium metallurgy. I, I, I don't know of anyone in the world that's, um, that's better at this than, than Grant, certainly not who's available uh, in, in the market, you know, who doesn't already work for one of the majors. Um, you know, we've, Grant's been involved with us for six years, I think now. So he's been right through all of the iterations of the various extraction methods and the various flow sheets that we've worked with and tried and tested. Uh, and, you know, he, he is our go-to guy from the technical point of view. But around Grant, we have, um, you know, we've built quite a significant team of, um, of people who are all very good at the specific parts of their job that they need to do. Um, most of that team is located in Europe, obviously. Uh, Grant's down here in, in Western Australia. But, you know, part of that is, is also beneficial. You know, WA has become the largest producer of hard rock lithium via spodumene concentrate over the last couple of years. So there's a significant amount of knowledge being gained in this part of the world um, because of that over that period of time. And Grant has had direct um, access to all of that, all of that knowledge and all of that IP. You've also got a few byproducts, we'll call them, in there too. I'm, I'm noticed tin, which is becoming very popular as of late. Um, what are you planning to do with that? In fact, when will you understand the value of that, if there is any? Sure. So, so there are a number of byproducts. There's a number of what I'd call potential byproducts. Uh, and really, you know, when we're talking about the economics of the project, it's it's only the tin that we really um, take into consideration. There's a couple of reasons for that. Cinevitz is a historic tin mine. Tin has been mined off and on uh, at Cinevitz for nearly 600 years. Um, and so there is a great deal known about the tin and the tin metallurgy, how it behaves and what have you. There's been, I think, 40-odd thousand tonnes of tin produced from Cinevitz over that period of time. It hasn't been mined since uh, shortly after the, the, the wall came down because the tin price at that point was uh, about $5,000 a tonne and it was sub-economic. Tin today is almost $30,000 a tonne. I think it's risen about 30% in the last month. Um, and it, it is a very valuable byproduct uh, for us, um, but it's a true byproduct. That is that we don't have to decide which of those metals tin or lithium we're going to favour in the processing, you know, according to what's flavour of the month at any particular point in time. The tin and the associated tungsten, which is of significantly lower value, the, the, the tin comes out right up front at our first processing stage, a wet magnetic separation. And through that wet magnetic separation, we actually increase the, um, the relative uh, lithium grade in the concentrate so it's you know it's beneficial at that point in time and it's uh, it, it's very handy. The other great thing about tin is that whilst lithium is not an LME traded metal, no terminal market and what have you, tin is is exactly the opposite and very easy very easy for us to sell tin. Um, the outlook for tin is great, but at thirty thousand dollars a ton, it's uh, it's a very valuable byproduct for us. Um, you know, there may be other things that we can sell and add to the economics as well, potash, for example, and some, some other uh, minor metals. But, you know, really the, the tin is a, is, is a key. In our most recent PFS, it had the effect of lowering our overall cost of production 
of battery-grade hydroxide from just under $5,000 a tonne to just under $3,500 a tonne. Okay, so that could be significant for you um, going forward. Um, just want to come back to something you said. Obviously, you know, this shares has put in like this $30 million bucks, right? But you've got, you've had, yes, you still have, yeah, euros, sorry. <laughs> You're right. Um, we did, you did raise some money recently yourself, so about $7 million earlier this month. I mean, why did you need to top up? Okay, so, so Chez's money went into the project company, Geomet, and it's, it's in that company. Um, now, European Metals is paid by Geomet to manage the definitive feasibility study. So European Metals doesn't need a great deal of cash, and we've always run, you know, fairly lean on cash balances. We were approached uh, last month by a, a group uh, led by um, one one notable uh, Luxembourg-based um, industry fund um, who who you know wanted to put some money in, wanted to become shareholders on the basis that they wanted to be there when we needed the big money in 12 months' time or whenever you know that decision comes about. And it was effectively a bought deal. Um, we, we thought it was prudent to do that and to bring a couple of significant institutional shareholders onto the register that, that we haven't really had insto shareholders um, historically. So it was just a nice fit. Okay, appreciate that. Um, you've been on a nice run for the last four months. Share prices done quite well. You're around, you know, just over two hundred million bucks, Aussie. Um, people, people are paying attention, as they are to the lithium sector generally. Um, what do you think people can expect to see this year? Is there anything of interest or do you think you know, things are going to just settle down for a bit until you get that DFS? No, I think that, you know there are some key things. There are obviously stages of the DFS that will report on, uh, bring the market up to speed with, with um, the progress of the DFS and the various stages. And within that, you know, there are some there are some key stages: the lock cycle test work, the pilot plant test work, all of these sorts of things. That are, you know, you know, I know, I know what you're saying. You know, a, a DFS can be a little dry at times, but you know, there will be some some key milestones in there that'll that will, I think, be significant significant for the market to hear. Um, you know, there are a couple of other things we have in mind with regards to. Uh, enhancing the project, not something that we've we've spoken about publicly up to this point in time. But I notice a couple of research analysts who've written research on us recently have have highlighted the possibility that we could look to go to a phase two and increase production at Cinevitz, um, and that is possible. We, you know, it's a very very large resource, as I mentioned, when we put together the, the PFS. We were, you know, on our own as a small, you know, West Australian mining company looking to fund a big project. So the 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 plan that we put in place for the PFS, a 25,000 tonne per annum um, production plant was about the right size. You know, we now, a few things have changed. We now have significant partners, uh, significant from a number of senses, you know, political, but financial as well. And we have a significantly better macro environment, particularly in the EU. Um, so to to talk about uh, doubling the production at, at Cinevix is something that I think we'll seriously consider a little later in the year. Certainly going to 50,000 tonnes against the backdrop of the forecast uh, demand in, in the EU is, is not a big number. Um, 
So that would be a key, but also, you know, probably the most significant thing we could do in the short term would be to announce an offtake payment. And will you? I certainly hope so, uh, Matthew. Look, it would make a significant difference. We, you know, we all saw the difference that um, that 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 uh, development made to a company like um, Piedmont, for example, with their involvement with uh, Tesla at Battery Day. And what it does is it 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 just brings a company in the development stage so much further up up the curve, uh, so much more quickly. And, and, you know, what, what I think is important about that particular transaction is that I think it was the, the demand side recognising that in order, in order for the supply side to catch up when it needs to catch up, you know, you can't rely on the incumbent majors. You know, there needs to be a number of the companies in the development stage brought up the curve quicker so their product can get into the supply chain as quickly as possible, or you know it is likely that there's going to be lithium um, supply shortages in, in in the not too distant future. Just to kind of finish up here, and as a sort of comparative type question, and it's in the context of ESG. Okay, so how do you, how do you think your project compares to you know spodgeming hard rock operations? Okay, so we. we we're quite comfortable that our ESG credentials are going to stack up very well, both you know, both from an absolute sense, but also from the point of view of a comparison with, for example, Spodgermain. Uh, and this, the whole ESG question, the LCA lifetime carbon carbon assessment question, is becoming more and more important. There's no doubt about that. We we will commission a formal study, a formal LCA, uh, a little later in the year. But anecdotally, we believe it'll it'll stack up very well. There's a couple of reasons for that. If you if you think of it of it firstly, just from the point of view of uh, local, you know, the supply chain. Um, if you're if you're mining spodumene here in Western Australia, putting it on a ship, shipping it seven thousand kilometres or whatever it is to China, um, and processing it there, and then moving it to say Japan to be turned into cathode, and then moving it to the end user. Uh, clearly, you know that that's going to have a, a, a greater CO2 impact than for us mining it, processing it just a few kilometres down down the hill, and then putting it on a truck, say 100 miles to to uh, Volkswagen at Zwickau, or 125 miles to Tesla at Berlin. You know, just anecdotally, we, we think that that's going to be in our favour. The other thing about that spodumen shipment, of course, is that 94% of that shipment is waste. You know, it's only 6% lithium con. Um, so, you know, we do think we'll stack up very well. We, we, we're keen to see the, what the formal study says, uh, but our, our feeling is that our ESG credentials will be very good. Uh, from, from the S part of the ESG, the social, social uh, aspect, we are re-entering a historic underground mine. We're not breaking new ground. It's not an open pit. It's not a, everything will be underground in the, in the front end. So very minimal impact um, socially and environmentally. And, you know, that's, that's done deliberately, done with good reason, and that is to ensure that we do have very good ESG credentials. Beautiful. Look, Keith, uh, thanks for that kind of, you know, we've had a nice introduction to, to our audience, perhaps hasn't heard this story before. Um, nice, significantly advanced lithium project at the heart of the European ecosystem. Uh, Stay in touch. Let us know how you get on. We've got a few deliverables this year. 
Um, I'd be delighted to take that phone call. Look forward to chatting further, Matthew. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.